Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Everything happens by chance and necessity. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today, part two of our 2019 series, Finding Meaning in the Universe. The brilliant astrophysicist Hubert Reeves in conversation with Ideas producer Mary Link. Reeves passed away at 91 on October 13th, 2023. And without chance, there'd be no Mozart. There would be no Mozart. There would be no... No, nothing. There would be monotony. Just monotony. So with chance, our universe avoided monotony and is spectacularly diverse and constantly surprising. And Mr. Mozart delights. But the universe is also a profound mystery to scientists. 95% of it is comprised of unknown matter. But we do have plausible knowledge of how it all began. And Hubert Reeves is one of the world's foremost experts on the Big Bang Theory, which led to the beginning of our universe and time. The distinguished astrophysicist has also been called the Einstein of Quebec, where he was born and raised and where, with his mother, he would often visit a family friend, a Trappist monk and botanist living at a nearby monastery in Oka. One of the great experiences I had with him, we used to go visit him in his laboratory, and he had a microscope. And he tells me, come look in the microscope, and what do I see? A number of little animals moving And I said, where is that? And he said, it's there. And I couldn't believe it. That there was so much activity in this little circle that I saw with my eyes. And that, I I thought, it must be nice to be a scientist. After receiving his PhD from Cornell University, he taught physics at Université de Montréal and was an advisor to NASA. In 1965, Hubert moved to France to become director of research of the renowned Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. And since then, he has become one of the country's most famous and beloved scientists, in part for his engaging ability to explain complex science. Reeves is also the recipient of the prestigious Albert Einstein Prize for his work, which gave, and I quote, the first indication of how much ordinary matter exists in the universe. At 87, Hubert has been dealing with some recent health issues and has had to take a break from public appearances. But he was able to travel from his Paris home to his 17th century estate in Malicorne, Burgundy. His refuge his place of inspiration. 
there, sitting outdoors at a long wooden table in his courtyard, Hubert Reeves spoke with Mary Link. We're calling part two, The Beauty of Chance. Can we talk a little bit about chance? Of course. <laughs> talk to me about the importance of chance and what that means, actually, in the role in the universe. I see that there are two things I will quote by Heraclitus. He said, everything happens by chance and necessity. And uh, his fellow says, that makes no sense. Either it is chance or necessity, but it cannot be both. This was 2,000 years ago, and after quantum mechanics, we know that he was right. In development of the world, there is necessity means law. There is structure. This world is structured. It has law, which are important, because if there were no law, there would be no structure. The structure either living or physical obeys laws like gravity and electromagnetism and so on. So without necessity, the universe would be structureless, like it was in the very early days. But because of chance, let me give you an idea. Imagine a number of snowflakes. What you notice is that there is structure there. All of them have six points. There is no exception to that. There is law in the world, and this law is what makes the world structure. But you can look at as many crystals of snow, they will all be different. None of them will have the same shape. You can have them thousands, billions. Why? Because there is also chance. And the chance is the way this crystal move before it comes on the earth, the temperature, humidity, and so on. Chance is what permits the world not to be always the same. If you have only law, you have monotony. You have only one crystal, you have only one butterfly, you have only one person. We are seven billion. We all obey the law, at least the physical law, but we are different. We are not all the same. So my idea is that law brings structure and chance brings diversity, variety, creativity. You could have no art. If there was only one way to make a cantata by Johann Sebastian Bach, you would have only one cantata, and you would not listen to them anymore. He could make 354 cantata with the same musical rules, not laws in this case, but the rules of the music. So I think the two instruments that nature used to build the world in its variety and its structure. And without chance, there'd be no Mozart. There would be no Mozart. There would be no, no nothing. There would be monotony, just monotony.
So is chance and play the same thing, that there's play in nature, that it has the ability to go in different routes that we don't expect? Exactly, and, and to create new things. Are we losing play in science, in the science world too, do you think? Is the play that you had as a young scientist? In a sense, it is true. Because of industry and commerce, the industrial science becomes more important. And the science which is related to creativity is becoming less and less important. That is certainly a danger of our time. And what will happen because of that, do you think? What do you see happening now? A diminution, a decrease in creativity. You could say the following thing. The hour of science, the good hour, the profitable hour, are mostly between 19 and 1940. Not much, at least in physics, at least in theoretical physics, not much new has happened. After Einstein and quantum mechanics, theoretical physics is not progressing. We don't notice any very important improvement like quantum mechanics since 1970 or so, I think. That's very profound. That we that, And we've stopped, do you think, because there's less creativity, less allowance of play? Because those new ideas are out there somewhere, or could be. We don't know, but we lack a kind of a progress of creativity of theoretical physics. Not experimental physics, not in science of the mind are developing very much. This is the place where the breakthrough takes place today. The interesting work is very much on life and, in particular, on the brain. Do you know what? I was on a plane about four or five years ago, and there was this physics PhD student, and he was lamenting to the woman who he didn't know sitting next to him on the plane, saying there used to be a course, and it was sort of um, a, a creative physics course where you could just play. There was no boundaries. And he said now there was four people in the class and he fears he'll be no longer. That that kind of teaching, even in the universities, for that kind of freedom to be playful. Do you notice that too? Well, what we notice is that, that the number of jobs is falling, is falling rapidly. When I was a student, the last year we were traveling in the United States. We were invited by universities to see if we would like to work with them. I had at least five or six invitations. Nowadays, people with the doctor degree have to wait years to get a job. It is true that the subject of research has fallen down very much since this time. Why this is so? Most likely because of the fact that money is becoming the most and most important in the story. You shared an award with the Swiss physicist Johann Geis, and you won the very prestigious Albert Einstein Prize in 2001, and that prize has gone to Stephen Hawking. And you both reached a similar conclusion using a different method. But you, your breakthrough, which maybe you can tell me about it, but it came through a, a train ride through the Alps. It wasn't sitting in a lab somewhere. Tell me about that. Well, it was after many days of questioning, trying to understand. And what happened is that for many years I was trying to understand. There was a 
the conflict. Very often from the conflict that you find something new when you resolve it. And this has to do with water. There are two kinds of water. There is water which is H2O, this is the usual water, and there is what is called peroxide. When I was young, when we had it, you put peroxide. The peroxide, is, it's 2H and 2O. Ordinary water is 2H and 1O, and peroxide is 2O. And we were trying to understand measurements of this quantity in the water here and quantities in the planets. And there was a conflict. I won't go into detail, it would be long, but something was wrong. And I had been turning over this idea. And I remember this day, I was in Switzerland, I was looking at the mountain, and then I had an idea. I was going to visit one physicist in Bern. This is the physicist who first put a screen on the moon to bring back particles coming from the sun. Because the particles that come from the sun, what we call the solar wind, does not reach here on Earth. It stops on the magnetic field and it stops also on the atmosphere. But the moon has no magnetic field and no atmosphere. So he had this idea and he succeeded in convincing the American astronaut who were bringing a flag, American flag on the moon, why don't you also bring a detector? And well, okay, they agreed. And then he left this detector on the moon for a year where it, it absorbs a lot of particle from the sun and it was brought back and studies and he found the quantity of this heavy water on the sun. So after this, we could estimate what was the density, whether the, the universe will, will recollapse or not. This situation has changed at that, but we found the first measurement showing something about the future of the universe. So this is what gave us this prize. And, and what it taught you that it wasn't collapsing, that it was expanding? We knew it was expanding. The question was, will it expand indefinitely or will it recollapse? And at that time, it was not clear that it would not recollapse. But your discovery proved what? That proved that it would expand forever. And this was confirmed after dark matter was discovered. Well, the situation is not totally clear today, but the odds are in favor of an expanding, continuing to expand. And so, but you were in the train and you were looking at the Alps and you were looking at snow melting. And how did, how did that inspire you to figure this out? <laughs> you don't know that, uh, of course. Search something for some time and uh, all of a sudden an idea come and say, well, how did I not uh, think of it before? At that moment, did you realize at that moment that you had solved it? Well, I realized that it was the way to think about it. It was the path, that we were on the wrong path, and uh, there was another path which turned out to be correct. And so you and, and the Swiss scientists both came to the same conclusion, so you shared the prize uh, through different methods. Uh, yes, and guys, when I arrive at Bern, I was invited to give a lecture and I told him I have a new idea about our problem 
And it's, it's all, I have had a new idea also. And we exchanged, and it was the same idea. You're lucky, because one of you could have claimed it for your own, but you didn't. No, it was... Uh, it was cooperation, though. There's a beauty in that. That's a lack of ego. Yes, and he was a good friend, and I, I like him. I was reading somewhere, and you're just talking about water and the water of the plants, that we used to always think that you'd have to see water on a planet to prove there can be life, but now they're saying there doesn't have to be water? Again, no one knows. All form of life we know is related to water. That doesn't mean that there is, that exists other form that would not... It's unlikely because water has particular property Namely, water is a solvent. If you put something in water, it will spread. So the atoms have more chance to meet. In a solid, the atoms do not meet. And there are a number of reasons why water is favorite. But again, that doesn't mean... Sometimes we say absence of proof is not proof of absence. I get that. And, and we don't have proof of extraterrestrial life, of life elsewhere. Nothing. Nothing we hope with the exoplanets. Every day we discover new exoplanets and we hope that we will find... The, the idea is to uh, analyze the atmosphere of the planets. Our planets, the Earth, has plenty of water. We are the only planet that has plenty of water. And we are the only planet that has life. That's the simple... So we say, apparently, they go together. But the fact that we will soon know what are the gas that are on the atmosphere, Mars in particular, but also Encelada, one of the satellites of Saturn. If we did find water, liquid water, on Mars, we would have more reason. But again, it's easy to be too rapid. We know that where there is life, there is always there is water. We don't know the inverse. The universe is too vast to know, isn't it? Well, we study the planet close by. The planet that we discovered, the exoplanet, are on the closest star, because after that it's too far. But do you think, again, that's prediction, but with your knowledge of science, does it make sense to you that... The probability is that there is, there will be life? You don't know how to compute probability. To compute the probability, you have to know what, how it happens. For instance, if you take a dice, the dice has six faces. So the probability to find one face is one-sixth. But if I give you a dice, a strange dice, with different number of faces, and I, I don't tell you, you cannot say anything. It's the same thing. We don't understand how life happens. We don't understand that the chemistry of the appearance of life, and then we cannot know. Of course, the numbers are suggestive. We evaluate that the number of planets on this universe is 1 with 22, 0. That's a very big number. If the probability of life to appear is lower than 1 over 10 to the 22, you have no chance. It's only if the probability is higher 
than the number of dice or the number of planets. You say, well, it's such a big number, but so what? What do you know about the world? It is not because I think that this is a large number, that it is a large number. It has nothing to do. My own estimation have nothing to do with, with what is. You see the danger when they say, it's impossible, there's so many planets. Impossible? How do you know that? You don't know that. There's a humbleness in that knowledge to know that you don't know. And that was a friend of mine, I said to me when I was saying I was going to talk to you that physicists to him are the most humble of all scientists. And studying the universe, I mean, it's so vast. There's billions of galaxies within our universe. And if there's other universes, who knows? But still, there's billions within ours. For you, do you think that has made you a certain type of person to, to, to know that we are so small and minuscule in such a large universe? Or how has that affected you personally in terms of, your, of who you are as a man? Well... First thing, it makes you ready to think and accept that anything can be. It's not because it's too big or too large. Don't confuse our intuition with reality. This is what science teaches you. Always question knowledge. Always, you tell me that, but how do you know that? How, this is, how is this discovered? And why could you say that it's not possible? I have discussions sometimes with people who says uh, this idea is incompatible with uh, it's impossible. Doesn't mean anything. It's like saying that there was something before, that there was a time when there was nothing. You don't know that. But what I was saying to you, though, is just the knowledge of how big the universe is when we see. And we know that the sun is very far from us. We know that there's many planets and galaxies. Mm. Does that not, in one sense, when you're constantly studying that, make you more grounded? That it, that it helps your ego, you know, id, ego, that it contains it more? Well, no. No, really. The fact that we are small... You know, there's this, this sentence by Pascal, which I like a lot. The universe could kill me millions of times, but it doesn't know that it's killing me. You see, it's the importance of knowledge. And even in the stars, as far as we know, the, the sun is not intelligent. It's much bigger than us, but and it's a question of estimation. I personally value the knowledge more than the mass, for instance. The fact that the human people has this power of uh, abstract thinking is for me something fantastic. And the fact that it exists anywhere in the world, it's fantastic. I don't understand, I don't know. But this world, for me, the most important thing that happened is the appearance of thinking of ideas. But in terms of our knowledge, you wrote once that it's almost a poison pill because what human knowledge is doing, it can be destructive. But, you know, before it might have saved us from the lions, but now it's allowing us to destroy the earth. This is the principal cause of all the trouble we're in. We are extremely powerful. Our intelligence is really very great. 
When I was a student, there was an expression, it was during the Cold War. The expression was the word overkill power. And overkill power was with the arsenal that we have everywhere in the world, how many times could you kill everyone? Of course, it doesn't make sense to kill one person once, but nevertheless, you understand the meaning. The maximum in the Cold War was attained in 1978 or 9. It was 17,000. There was enough bomb with a little bit of luck. You could evaporate humanity 17,000 times. And of course, the situation has improved after the Cold War, but it, we see it coming back again. We saw it coming back with uh, the president of, of Korea. We have the power to kill us many times in two different ways. One is nuclear weapon. The second one is, of course, the ecological problem, climate change, erosion of biodiversity. Every day, almost, in newspapers, you learn some other problem, and no one knows how long humanity and life will live on Earth. I'm not pessimistic. I'm not optimistic. I say we don't know. We have, however, to take the view that we have to do everything to keep this planet habitable. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on RN and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also download Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is part two of our series, Finding Meaning in the Universe, Conversations with Astrophysicist Hubert Reeves. We're calling this show The Beauty of Chance. He was born 87 years ago in Quebec. He moved to France in the 1960s to become the director of research of the prestigious Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. In France, he is universally revered, not just for his scientific discoveries and leadership, but also for his popularization of science in general. And while he's also a treasure to Quebecers, he is not well known, outside of scientific circles, in the English-speaking world. To learn more about Hubert Reeves, head to our website, where you'll also find videos of him answering some of the big questions, like, and this is a really big one, what is the meaning of the universe? Let's return to Hubert Reeves with Ideas producer Mary Link at his place of refuge, his country estate in Malacorn, Burgundy. You quoted once a researcher, D.W. Winnicott, who said that the crucial event in our life is our encounter with reality. Exactly. And one of the 
key realities in front of us right now is the effects of climate change. And yet so many people are in denial or put their heads in the sand. What is behind this inability to accept our reality? The answer is something like, we don't want to see. We refuse to see. You know, when, when you get ill and you have fever, the best thing to do is to break the thermometer. It's this kind of human reaction. It is part of the human nature to refuse to see the danger when it is... Not everyone is in there, but we have the proof there. There is no one scientifically valid institution in the planet who deny the reality of the warming of the Earth. Why is there that you see all around the world people who refuse to see it? It's a psychological question. I don't know the answer, but it is that. In French, uh, there is a translation. I will make it in English. This is called the PFH. PFH is le putain de facteur humain. <laughs> putain, c'est un mauvais mot. And this is, there is, in, in the human people, this putain de facteur qui est to refuse, to refuse to see the truth when the truth is un, unbearable. So as humans, we have this difficulty with reality, but we also have this ability to believe in things that have no real basis or have no proof of existence. We have this ability to have faith in things, to have religion, to believe in a god. Then I read in a book of yours, you, you quoted Freud, who said that we are rational human beings. We know what is the difference between the real world and fairy tales, yet deep within us, we still can't help wanting to believe in that kind of yes. magical answer. Yes. There is always something in us that tells us, yes, of course, we're, now we live in a, a period of science, we are rational, we understand that all this is, is bullshit. But sometimes, a little voice in ourselves tells, well, perhaps not. You see, that I like this view of, uh, of Darwin, who says, we have no certainty nowhere. We don't believe in phantoms and ghosts, of course. We are scientists, we're serious. Science is there, it's proved all that altogether. But sometimes a little voice says, well, if this was wrong. What is that? Why is that? Because we have no certainty on, on everything about this world and where we are and why. It was just imposed on us. One day your parents made love and a little new being became without asking your permission. It was you. And you have to live with this fate. We have to live with this, this duty that is imposed on you. You also talk about the fact that there's sentient beings outside us, not just humans, that animals and, and the importance of biodiversity. I think any existent being has its own dignity. And this, this is why I, I am against the, the barn with the, the cow being considered as just money money-making. 
You see, in the Bible, you read in the beginning, God said, dominate the animals. Human people are the top. In Christian life, they have a soul. Animals have no soul, so animals are made to serve human. That, I think, is our big mistake. It's a mistake that we make in eliminating the uh, animals, the fly, the, the bees, and so on. This is the basis of our problem because we are not integrated in the ecosystem. We destroy our ecosystem. When there were not many people, this was not very grave. But since the last 50 years or so, we are so numerous and so powerful that again, our power is threatening us of destruction. And you wrote, too, that with our intelligence that we're gifted with, that, that man's role should be to preserve, not to destroy. To preserve nature and to preserve humanity. Because humanity, despite its many problems, has uh, brought in this world things that no brand of animals have ever brought. One of them is music. There's no Mozart in, in the... In the in the animal world. The, the, the one is science. No one has ever understood the laws that govern the world or build up instrument to see what is invisible. And the third one, which I think is more important, is Think of a, a nest in which there are four birds. Two of the birds are ill and two are healthy. The parents will feed the healthy birds and will let the ill birds die. The scientific tells us that the reason is that the healthy bird has more chance to have healthy genes. It's better to save them. Now take a family of two children. One is sick, the other one is healthy. The parents will take care of the sick sometime even more. And why? Why is, it, why is there this difference between the birds or, or the frogs or, or the flies? Or? The difference is that during evolution, something has happened to human people, which is the fact that you suffer when you see somebody suffering. You have a natural feeling, empathy. empathy, compassion, which some of the big animals have too. We know that some whales and dolphins have. But as far as we know, insects or birds do not. And this is the third thing, you see. The, the three things that humanity has brought and that if they disappear, would disappear, is art, science and compassion. And I think it's a personal opinion. For these three things, the human brand deserves to be preserved and to be saved.
You know, I was just at a hospice. You know what a hospice is? Uh, that's opening in Halifax, and I just took a tour, and I was so struck. There's 10 beds, and you know it costs a lot of money. People are fundraised for it. And I thought, these people, they have to be close to three months or less to live. And I think all this care and this thoughtfulness that we do at someone, the end of someone's life, what that says about us as humans, that that it really, it's defining us. It is true. It is true. It is a, something that we have and is worthwhile. Yeah. So it's worthwhile saving. And do you think about that for you? At I mean, especially as a, as a physicist, where time is a really important element of physics, what do you think at 87, or 87, 86? You'll be 87 this summer, right? So at 86, do you think about the end? Does that occupy you at all? Yes, very much so. Very much so, yes. But it is more effectively, I mean, not rationally. Rationally, I think, well, a hundred years ago, there were other people here. But when you think that yourself... I don't know where I will be in 10 years. And that, and that disturbs me a great deal. It's hard. Yes. The, the concept of time. But do you know, what's your favorite piece of music by Schubert? Schubert is one of my, my favorite, the quintet with two alto. And do you know that that was written? I looked it up because I, I read that it's your favorite. Do you know who wrote that in his last week of life? Is that so? Yes. Um, no, I didn't. What is it about the music that you love so much? What, what does music do for you? I don't know. It, it's part of me so much that uh, I, I listen to music all the time. And that, and that piece by Schubert that we were talking about, what, what, what is it about that piece that you love so much? The gift of music or the, is that it penetrates you from all parts of your body. It is not in the mind. It is not mental. But it, it, it enters, the word is enters you. When I work at home with music, I work and I continually listen. I can work, you know, like if I had two ears, it doesn't disturb me at all from, from writing. Do you think it's made you a better scientist, music? Well, I know that it makes me happy. <laughs> That's the main thing. Sometimes I try, I, I work in some place where there is no music, and I have the feeling that something is missing. And then I go and uh, put some music. It is like if it was part of me. It's like you're never alone with music. That's right. That's right. It's always You're always with somebody, and Schubert in particular. I like the expression about Schubert. I like to say it is something that speaks to you at your ear. It is a presence. And even if it is 200 years, he is still there. Schubert is still here, isn't he? There's a lovely quote from one of your books, and it's from the French writer Louis Aragon, and he's writing about the death of his friend and the acclaimed poet Guillaume Polinaire, and he wrote, quote, The earth reclaims this mortal flesh, but not the poetry. 
Yes, that's beautiful. That is really, I think, one of the aim of the universe is to produce such thinking, such beauty. Yes, and the fact that actually death is not death in the sense that we still have Aragon telling us things like this. Do you contemplate what is after death or do you just wait? I just wait because I haven't the slightest idea. There might be just nothing. There might be a lot. Again, we don't have, we don't have much imagination. And we also have a, a major problem with things ending. True, true. Ask the problem of time. Did time start? Did time end? It's something that our way of thinking cannot handle. It's somewhat outside of our possibility of understanding, of putting clear words as answers. What's amazing is that not only you are this great scientist and this astrophysicist who loves to work with music, you also hold concerts. You have the orchestra behind you and you read poetry or you talk about the universe. And another thing that's really important to you in terms of the creative arts is literature. I mean, you're a beautiful writer. There are many of your books that have been translated into English and I encourage people to read them because they're often about science and the universe or big questions, but they're such they're so beautifully written. They're they're poetic. And that makes sense because you are also a great connoisseur of poetry. What are some of your favorite poems? In English I have always liked Walt Whitman because of this power, the power of, of a stock. In French Baudelaire, Verlaine, Rimbaud, the classical. I have learned by heart a lot of poems, and I like to tell them to myself, the night or sometime, or in the metro when I'm stuck in the metro or something. And there is so much pleasure in the world. I don't understand how. It is something very mysterious to me. How much pleasure we have to say some verse, some word that fills us with, with beauty. Would you mind reciting a favorite poem? in French, and I will roughly translate it? Yes. Patience, patience, patience dans l'azur. Chaque atome est la chance d'un fruit mûr. Patience, patience, patience in the blue sky. In each atom of silence is a chance of a ripened fruit. There will come the blessed surprise, a dove, the breeze, the softest shock, a woman who leans against you, letting fall this rain that throws you to your knees. And that's by Paul Valéry. Why, why this poem? What does, why does this poem mean so much to you? Because it brings me, in my mind, images of beauty, not only images, but sounds also. Patience dans l'azur. This is the title I gave to one of my books because I had written a book on the history of the universe, the evolution of the universe from the Big Bang, the star, the galaxy, and everything. And I had as a title, L'évolution universelle. It says what it says, but it has 
no power, no imagination. If you replace it by patience, patience in, in, English, in French is a little different from patience. Patience has something poetic. Patience means the woman who is patiently waiting to have her baby, it takes time. Patience means it takes time. But what is the result could be marvelous, is marvelous, a human being. When you think that by some chemistry that we don't understand very well, you see coming a baby with his head, his intelligence, his beauty, and, and everything. The word patience says that. Patience dans l'azur means it's the same story with the universe. The universe is developing, stars are building, planets are building, on one life is building. Always something new comes with patience. It takes time. It took 14 billion years to make people like you and me. How boring it would be to know what's always going to happen. It would be deadly and deadly. This is one of the nice parts of of universe. The universe has a lot of imagination. It is always inventing new things, and these new things are more and more beautiful, sometimes not beautiful at all, but always something new. There is, we live in a world which is all the time in a state of, we call it gestation, like a, a baby. We're sitting here in your garden at Malacorn. What thoughts preoccupy your mind these days the most? The future. The future of this planet. What will be here in this place in 50 years? No one knows. And I'm very worried about how long this planet will remain habitable. This is what what worries me very much. I have a friend of mine who's a lovely colleague and friend, and she has two young children, and she's very sensible and intelligent and intellectual. But the other day she just said, I just, I'm in the midst of sort of existential angst about the world, about the rise of nationalism, about climate change. What do you say to someone who has no hope? I used to always say keep the faith it's easily lost and I don't mean that in a religious way but 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 it she has real concerns I understand that I think the one thing we know for sure is that the future is unknown and unpredictable it is true that we have worried but many times on this planet there were situations like this where you had for instance the pest of 1400 or so where many people thought that this was the end. And life has a way to rebound that has shown itself several times. And this is our only hope. But it doesn't mean that it will happen. It means it could well happen. And it could well happen that the situation would improve considerably. What do you say to someone listening right now? That's often the question. We know that we need international cooperation, but what do you say to the individual who feels hopeless? What can they do to make a change? Well, first of all, it is something mental. It is an attitude. If you take the attitude that everything is finished, everything is finished. All is in the attitude of something can happen
Hubert, uh, you're the honorary president of France's prestigious organization called Humanity and Biodiversity, and you and this organization are supporting several other organizations around the world, environmental, scientists, educational, who have signed this ecological and social pact. It's called the, the Power of Living Pact. What is the way forward? I don't know if this is what we are searching at the moment. If, uh, there are all over, all over this planet movements trying to find better way of living. I don't think we have found one. We are in the process of trying to find something and hoping to find something that would not be catastrophic. It feels right now things are very finite. There, we have a chance now to really end everything. It, it just feels we are really close to ending Earth here than we ever have been. And we can, I, can, I can conceive it now. It is true that the dangers are great. I will summarize the situation as I see it. There are two different powers. One power of deterioration and one power of restoration, which show up in the earth and are becoming more and more powerful. Deterioration, all what we talked about, restoration, all this effort talked about restoration everywhere in the world. So it is like a fight with two fighters which are gaining power. So no one knows who will win. No one knows, has the slightest idea of how this earth will be in 50 years. And 50 years, it's not very long. I think it is an open fight today between these two forces, one which is older, the force of restoration, I like sometimes to say to people who are discouraged that the beginning of this restoration fight is not so young. It is roughly 1817, and it takes place in California. It is the creation of the first park, laws to preserve nature, this is a motion that started at that time, gave rise to uh, the Sequoia Park, and uh, it continues. So it is not recent. And one event which I like to mention, do you know the book by Rachel Carlson that is called Silent Spring? Yes. This is 1960. Rachel Carlson succeeded to obtain a law to forbid DDT, and this was a very important step. It's the beginning of the laws against pesticide and so on. So you have events. It's, it's a motion that builds up. And in the last five or ten years, it is becoming more and very, very powerful. There was not too long a great hope when the Paris Accord agreement was signed with the international agreement to fight climate change. But then President Trump in 2017 said that he was planning to withdraw. What's your reaction to that? What I'm being told is that the influence of Trump was actually rather positive because it made a lot of people in the United States to react and become more interested in ecology, namely realizing this is a problem. You see, sometimes which looks like a bad news may have a good side. And I understand in the United States, many cities are involved. I don't believe much in government. Government will take the vote 
You mean national governments as opposed to city governments? Yes. Many cities are actually very active in ecological actions. Everywhere you hear about that. You didn't hear so much about it 20 years ago. It's something that is growing rapidly. In Canada, where you're from, and you're still Canadian and French, um, citizen of both countries, uh, in Alberta, Jason Kenney just won. The economy's not been doing very well. Oil is down. And it's a big debate now in Canada about the pipelines. What would you say to Justin Trudeau about the pipelines? People argue that you still have to get the oil out of the tar sands, and so you may as well do it. What do you think? What we know now is that if we extract all the oil that is available, the temperature goes up 5, 6 degrees, and that is not non-gérable, as we say. So I think the aim, the overall aim, should be today stop drilling for oil. It is doomed if we extract all the oil. So I would make it the first principle. Stop getting oil and coal. Leave it where it is. If at almost 87, and if I could give you a magic wand to have one question answered, one scientific question answered, and yet, so it doesn't have to be realistic, any question you want answered before you pass, that will be answered. Are we alone? That's the question. That uh, are, are there other persons asking questions in this universe? Are there other person conscious like we are? I don't know. We could find an answer. My feeling is that the answer is yes, but it's a purely a feeling. I have no proof of that. I have this as a feeling, but it could be wrong. But you've already told me that feeling's important, and that feeling, when you come to, to Malacorn, you feel, and that's just as important as the, the rational mind. Exactly. Exactly. Rational mind is only a small part of reality. Reality is much wider than what can be understood rationally. On Ideas, you've been listening to The Beauty of Chance, part two of our 2019 series, Finding Meaning in the Universe, conversations with astrophysicist Hubert Reeves, he passed away October 13, 2023. We also have more information on Reeves, his writings and videos shot at his country estate in Burgundy at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, including his answer to what is the meaning of the universe? Special thanks to Hubert's wife, Camille Scoffier Reeves, web producer Lisa Ayuso, Technical production, Pat Martin and Danielle Duval. This episode was produced by Mary Lake. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayad. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.